0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth for Tuesday, January 25th, 2011.
0: Coming up, a discussion with science writer Todd Neff about Boulder's history in space science and building spacecraft. And we also hear about how climate change may be driving plants downhill.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. By mimicking the eyes of moths, Japanese researchers have been able to give a sizable boost to the efficiency of solar cells, which make electricity from sunlight. The eyes of moths feature a water-repellent coating that is also among the least reflective surfaces in nature. This helps the insects hide from predators in the dark. The researchers have created a very similar film that possibly could be used as a coating for solar cells. By cutting down on the amount of reflected sunlight, the covering can help solar cells convert more of the sun's energy into electricity. Writing in the journal Energy Express, the researchers estimate that the films would improve the annual efficiency of solar cells by 5% or more. That may not sound like a lot, but greater efficiency translates into lower costs for solar panels, which today produce electricity that is much more expensive than that generated using fossil fuels so every efficiency gain for solar energy generation is important to make it financially more competitive.
0: Thanks to soaring temperatures, Greenland experienced a record amount of melting in 2010. According to a paper published last Friday in the journal Environmental Research Letters, new records were set during the year for a number of factors including surface melting, runoff of water, the number of days when bare ice was exposed due to melting snow, and the decrease in the total mass of Greenland's ice sheets. Also out last week, the annual Arctic Report Card from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. The report card finds that Greenland was beset by record-setting high air temperatures in 2010. Among other things, this led to a record amount of ice lost from glaciers flowing down to the sea from Greenland's ice sheet. According to NOAA, The rate of area loss from these glaciers was 3.4 times that of the previous eight years. As the new findings were being published, some members of Congress were pressing to cut federal funding for international climate change initiatives. The Republican Study Committee Budget Plan, released last Thursday, includes a provision to, quote, eliminate taxpayer subsidies to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which it says will produce a $12.5 million annual savings.
1: If you're a college student, you probably spend a lot of time reading and rereading your notes before a test, because everybody knows that's the best way to learn the material, to repeat it over and over and over, right? Well, according to psychologist Jeffrey Karpicki of Purdue University, you'll do better if you put your notes away and break out some flashcards. That's because flashcards allow you to practice retrieval, recalling information from memory. And retrieval seems to be an even better learning tool than repetition. Carpicky tested 200 students on their ability to learn and remember new information. In one group, students reviewed the material and took notes. In the other, they put their books away and practiced recalling information from the text. After a week, the students were tested to see how much they remembered, and also how well they could draw new, meaningful connections from what they had learned. Those who practiced retrieval performed 50% better than the students who studied using repetition. While repetitive studying is still useful, Karpicki's research indicates that exercising your memory is an even better way to learn. The findings appear in this month's issue of the journal Science. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. One of the widely expected ramifications of climate change is that plants and animals will move to higher latitudes and elevations in order to maintain the temperatures they require. But recent studies show that this is not universally the case, as reported by John Stewart for BBC's Science in Action.
2: We've heard before that warming temperatures around the world are forcing species to move to higher ground in search of the cooler temperatures that they're used to. But as another example of how complicated the picture is when it comes to global warming, scientists have now found evidence that mountain plants in California are actually creeping downhill, probably because of a change in rainfall and water availability. Solomon Dubrowski from the University of Montana.
3: The general consensus is that as the planet warms wildlife plants will generally shift upwards in elevations or towards higher latitudes
2: to basically maintain consistent temperatures as the planet warms. So they're basically almost, you know, climbing up the sides of mountains, searching out that cooler weather as the lower latitudes get get warmer and warmer.
3: Yeah, that's that's basically correct, and there's decent amount of evidence for this type of pattern for a number of species, primarily plants, insects, birds, butterflies... But the uh, pattern isn't universal. For plants, it seems to be a little bit less clear as to what's going on. And part of this research was to try to assess that process.
2: Yeah, exactly. This is what you've been looking into, and and in certain areas in particular. Tell us where you've been looking
3: our work's basically centered at California, the mountain ranges of California, north of Southern California. So for people who aren't familiar with the geography of California, there's a mountain range that heads east-west, just north of the Southern California Basin, is where we were examining these patterns.
2: And what have you found has been happening to plants in those areas? Well, contrary to
3: expectations, and I can say that I had these expectations as well, we found that plants in the last 75 to 80 years in California have actually shifted downhill. They're growing on average at lower elevations, about 80 meters lower on average than they previously
2: were in the 1930s. This sounds like one of those things where you, you get the data in and have to triple check it just to make sure that it's, it's all exactly right if it's going counter to your expectations.
3: That's exactly what happened. My graduate student, Sean Crimmins, when he first approached me about this finding I looked at him and I told him to go back and recheck his analysis because it was one of those things where you have some preconceived notions about what you expect and when you see something that's 180 degrees from that you tend to double check your numbers and make certain that what you're seeing is real and he did come back from that and we found that yes in fact those were real
2: numbers and We had to basically revisit our assumptions about what was going on. So before we get into why this might be happening, what exactly were you looking at? What sort of time period and and what type of plants?
3: We were basically using two vegetation inventory data sets from that study area. One collected in the 1930s and one
2: collected in the 2000s. And the next big question then that I guess you had and looked into was why these plants might be moving downhill rather than uphill as you all expected.
3: Yeah. After we revisited the assumption about temperature really driving uphill shifts, we came to realize that in California, in fact, the plants weren't tracking temperature per se. They were tracking basically water availability. In the last 75 to 80 years in California, at least in the study region, which is the northern half of the state, increases in precipitation have actually outpaced increases in evaporation, and consequently plants are able to maintain water at lower elevations than they were previously capable of, and this has led to downhill shifts. Pretty simple story, but um, by and large it's something that hasn't been documented well before.
2: So this is one of the complications of climate change. We tend to think of warming on a global scale, but on local levels different factors are having an impact. In this case it's a change in rainfall.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and there's been a lot of Emphasis and energy put towards looking at temperature patterns probably in the last decade. In fact, just recently I read that 2010 is turned out to be the hottest year on record, tied with 2005. But the, the footnote to that was that 2010 is also the wettest year on record since they've been keeping instrumental records. And the things that are going on with precipitation and water availability are going to really drive a lot of the, I think, the ecological, biological, and societal effects that we're going to see in the coming decades. And it's an area that we have less understanding of, and
2: that's becoming more clear now with the science that's going on. Solomon Dabrowski, and he says it's not just California where this is happening, but probably in lots of places all over the world where rainfall patterns are changing.
1: Thanks to John Stewart and BBC's Science in Action for that report.
0: You are listening to How on Earth, KGNU's Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. When people hear about rockets and launches, space telescopes and spaceships going to explore other worlds in our solar system, they usually think of NASA centers in places like Cape Canaveral or Houston. But Boulder has a long and rich history in space studies and rocket science going back to days even before NASA existed. That history intersects with the Ball Corporation, a name familiar to many of you, not just here in Boulder, but if you ever made fruit preserves, you probably used a mason jar created by that company. So how did a company go from making jars to building incredibly technical spacecraft instruments for the Hubble Space Telescope and many other space missions? And how did Boulder become such a major player in aerospace and science research? Well, to answer those questions and more, we have science writer todd neff here in the studio todd was the science journalist for the boulder daily camera newspaper and he has a new book titled from jars to the stars he will be speaking at the boulder bookstore tonight at 7:30, 30 but he's here with us now to share some of the stories behind this remarkable history and in particular about the deep impact mission that intentionally crashed a spaceship into a comet and how difficult that was Welcome to Hell on Earth, Todd.
3: Joel, thank
4: you. It's great to be here.
0: So uh, what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, as
4: you mentioned, I was the science writer for the camera and covered the Deep Impact mission, which was built by Ball Aerospace and Technologies Corp just around the corner, actually, here. And um, I covered it uh, from a journalist's perspective at first, which had to do a lot with the science, the gee whiz. You're getting underneath the blackened husk of an orbiting body to get to the pristine remnants of the solar system's creation. And you have bullets hitting, uh, watching bullets hitting other bullets, the comet being a bullet, and it's, it was a dual spacecraft. So it's a whole bunch of gee whiz, wow. And I had a sense that there was a little bit more to it. And and it decided in late 2005, as, it, as, it, as it, it's been a little while now, that I wanted to get a sense of how this is actually done. Who are the people, the unheralded engineers and managers and so forth that spend years of their lives to put together a spacecraft capable of doing such amazing things, to, 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 to garner a little scoop of, of commentary material <clears throat> captured via light, um, a, a new uh, um, together new information about about the cosmos
0: and creation. So your book your book has two parts. I mean the what you just talked about the deep impact mission and the difficulty of basically trying to hit a bullet with another bullet is half of the book, but the first half talks about kind of the background the history how this happened i mean your history goes all the way back to like v2 rockets and th- in fact that's how you start your book what what's the connection you know why go all the way back there
4: it's Ex- exactly well i thought i was going to write about deep impact and then i had a couple of conversations with folks at ball and realized that i'd gotten myself into more than i'd actually planned balls his paul ball airspace predates nasa by nine years and and It's not just Ball in this case. It it all started in the basement of the Hale Physics Building, now the Hale Sciences Building, where anthropology professors and primate biologists hang out today. They had a a project they called the Rocket Project, the Upper Air Laboratory. And the Air Force wanted to figure out how to point an instrument at the sun. The sun was the first target of space science. It was a big target, but it was also an important one for military scientists because Uh, solar flares affected radio communications. The sun affects atmospheric density, which which affects how accurately you can drop a bomb on someone. And it also, these guys were scientists, and they were guys at the time, largely.
0: So they wanted to... Know how to point at the sun. They want to know how to point which at the sun. Seems like a relatively simple thing. Seems
4: like it would be. Except you're on a sounding rocket. A v, the V two was the first human creation to to climb high enough over the atmosphere that you could capture certain bands of light through which the sun really uh, kind of exposes its true colors, like
0: ultraviolet light, which doesn't make it through our atmosphere. Exactly,
4: and that's what they were looking for: is UV and, and, and ultraviolet light and X ray light. Um, but they couldn't figure out uh, some of the. the greatest uh, scientific minds and engineering minds in the in the country were having a hard time putting something on the nose of a spinning rocket that was also bucking around that could somehow point at the sun. This is before you had computer technology. Um, it was a really difficult problem. So it was an, an Air Force scientist that had earned the second PhD ever conferred at the University of Colorado Physics Department. His name was Henry Miley. Whose advisor was William Peeton who was the chairman of the physics department? This relative backwater at the time, out and, in Colorado. And this
0: was back in the early this 50s. Is 1948.
4: 48. 1948 and in April, 48, 47, 48. April of 48, they signed the, the biggest research contract ever, at, in probably the state of Colorado for sixty nine thousand dollars, <laughs> and uh, they're going to build three of these pointing controls in a year, and it's going to turn out just great.
0: And they they were doing this from scratch.
4: They were doing it from scratch. It took them. Four and a half years, they blew their budget by a factor of 10. What they promised was nothing like they delivered, but they delivered. And in 1952, they captured um, a band of light called Lyman Alpha. It's ultraviolet light that scientists had hypothesized was in great abundance from the sun, but we couldn't prove it. And these guys in, in, in Colorado managed it, and that started it all.
0: And so they were based through the university, is that correct? They were at the University of Colorado. So, so how does the Ball Corporation, the jar makers, get into the mix? Yes,
4: it was serendipity and coincidence, and it was personal relationships again. You had Ed Balls, the head of, a, of a Ball Brothers Corporation of Muncie, Indiana. They're an old line glass manufacturer. He's looking to modernize, comes across a company called Control Sales Corporation, which makes, of all things, electronic scales, weighing devices, nothing to do with <laughs> space. But the guy who ran control cells lived around the corner from from David Stacey, who was the upper air laboratories, the rocket projects, uh, one of the lead scientists. He had been a PhD student, earned his PhD at CU. And one thing led to another, um, the Control Cells Corporation... Uh, president, which became a division of Ball, was, was neighbors with Has said, introduced him to Ed Ball. Ed Ball says, this looks very interesting. Meanwhile, the scale doesn't work. <laughs> so so Ball, what you bought it for isn't working. Exactly. So rather than punting and just saying, I give up on Boulder, I'm going back to Muncie, he hires uh, two of the lead guys from the rocket project, which incidentally went on to become LASP, which is this amazing space science powerhouse So there's the Boulder. other connection. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but hires them into ball, and they start making pointing controls too didn 't bother the c u team particularly the c u president wasn't happy because the, he enjoyed watching the checks come into the into the, the university's coffers. But the physics department saw this as a manufacturing line was happy to offload some of the demand to ball and and that 's how we got started
0: and It seems like you also talk about how the culture at ball was very different than say other aerospace companies. You had an interesting little snippet in your book about how at another aerospace company they banned. Coffee, Coffee breaks because they said it was uh, it wasn't a, it was a waste of company time.
4: Exactly. Coffee breaks had to go away and they didn't allow you to have drinks at your desk. So what you ended up having were, were, were grown men, very intelligent, and mostly men. I don't mean to be sexist here, but this was a very male oriented back in those days. Yeah, <laughs> rocket scientists. And today uh, women play central roles in all these missions, but they're sneaking sips of Pepsi under the desk and so forth. Ball Aerospace was an interesting, it was called Ball Brothers Research at the time, and uh, they were a part university. And there was always a very analytical and a very... um, I don't know, academic bent to the way the place worked. And also Ball Brothers uh, Company and Ball Corporation today, they have a very welcoming culture. I don't know how to describe it. People stay at this company for decades, both the aerospace division and the canning division, which sure. still is, sent, is is based here in, in Broomfield.
0: So moving from the past and the history to a little closer to the present now, Ball Aerospace, through their involvement in uh, building instruments, gets involved Deep Impact. So, first, what was the origin of Deep Impact? Who are the people who first came up and developed this idea?
4: Well, it, it, it emerged from the a general trend in, in, in the space business in the late '80s, early '90s. We, we had these massive missions for years and years. The space shuttle was this huge delivery vehicle, and you had you had the Viking and Voyager; those were rocket launched, but essentially billion-dollar-plus missions that took a decade to get done. And scientists were getting a little time and, and politicians um, everybody was saying can't we do this a little more quickly fewer instruments smaller spacecraft and so forth so the discovery program as it was called was born in the early 90s and um, it was again personal relationships that got that got a deep impact going Alan Delamere it, it still lives in Boulder and was a senior engineer at Ball and had to de- d- help develop the camera on a Haley a comet uh, mission called Giada it was a European mission and his friend Mike Belton wanted to get through the husk of a comet to see what was inside and said, hey, Alan, you know, we ought to try to do something. And Alan Delamere's specialty was talking to the scientists and saying, wow, that is an absolutely insane idea. But let's see if we can't figure out a way to do something like that. And Deep Impact evolved from that process. They failed twice. They pitched it in, in 96 and NASA, there were a couple things about it that NASA didn't like for good reason. Yeah, and I was they going to ask,
0: how, how was it received by NASA? Poorly. This, <laughs> idea. this was a unique idea. It was a great idea, but they didn't like
4: the execution in 1990. The first time around 96, they were going for what was a dead comet, the Phaeton it's called. Supposedly, they believe it to be the source of the Gemini meteor shower that comes around once a year. And Phaeton was moving really quickly. It was a dead comet, so NASA was saying, well, why not go after a live comet? And one of the reasons you don't have to shield your spacecraft with a dead comet because you're not going to get hit by a p- comet particle. A dead comet, by the way, is one that's been by the sun so many times that that husk is so deeply burned that nothing else it's is not coming It's not really off spewing it. off things exactly. anymore. It looks like an that asteroid. would be
0: a problem for a spaceship. Right.
4: And, the, and the impactor was dead, meaning there was no intelligence built into the impactor. So the second time around, they said, all right, we'll make a live impactor. They had to hit the comet in a brightly lit spot. And NASA said, "Well, how are you going to do that with a, with a, without a homing mechanism? So in, 90, in 98, two years later, they came back with a live impactor. And a live comet, Hmm. and off we went.
0: Well, you kind of uh, alluded to early on how the difficulties of this mission, hitting a bullet with another bullet. I mean, usually we try to design spacecraft to not crash into something, and that seems very (laughs) difficult. So, why was it so difficult to actually run into something? What was really hard about this mission
4: was that it was so far away. The comet was 83 million miles away from Earth when the impact happened. Seven and a half minutes it takes for a light wave, a radio wave to get from you to the combat back or to the spacecraft slash combat and back. So it had to happen autonomously. It all had to be done, thought out in advance, and the spacecraft, and there were two spacecraft also, which had never been separated before in space until 24 hours beforehand. They had to do it all on their own, and they had to be sure that it worked on their own because there was no joysticking, as they call it. You couldn't go and fix the problem. Right.
0: You're trying to hit a bullet with a bullet via remote control with some significant time delay. Exactly. So there were many difficulties in... in this mission and you know I, I i know that you probably have lots of stories about the difficulties of how to do it and uh we could probably spend another hour just talking about those but uh i just wanted to finish off with you you wrote that uh one fellow said we touched a comet yeah. which is a very has a very personal feel to it um and it seems like this mission had many quote-unquote impacts uh culturally and scientifically um what did you get was the feel of the cultural impact how did people respond to this
4: in terms of the the public
0: in, yeah and
4: the well it was a massive no pun intended it was a huge hit <laughs> the smashing success and so forth it was on the cover of of magazines all over the world um i think uh, it's funny that i looked inside the mission mainly on this book so, I mean, to me, the impact was seeing how these teams that built this, who started out, it was JPL, um, Ball, and NASA, and scientists, and they started out at, at loggerheads, and they by the end of it, they'd really turned into a team and accomplished something that, I think they were so buried into, in, into the details of what they were doing for a while, that they didn't understand the impact, you know, again, no pun intended, the magnitude of what they'd achieved, and it was phenomenal. So, you see this personal growth that
0: I think is, is really quite beautiful. Well, we were speaking here with science writer Ted Neff, Todd Neff, uh, about his new book from Jars to the Stars: How Ball Came to Build a Comet Hunting Machine. If you want to hear more about this chapter of Boulder's scientific history, Todd will be at the Boulder Bookstore tonight at 7:30 to speak more about his book and sign copies. Uh, he'll also be in Denver at the Denver Press Club at 1330 Glenarm at six o'clock on Thursday. Thank you very much for coming into the Thank studio. Thank you, Joel. It was a real pleasure. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced with the help of Tom Yulsman. Tim Morton wrote our theme music.
1: Tom Ossinger produced it. Additional music from 801 and Craftwork. We have a new website. Check it out at HowOnEarthRadio.org. That's HowOnEarthRadio, no spaces.org. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham.
0: And I'm Joel Parker.